Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went into the Woods, with me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, Jonna Murray, the original stage manager. Once upon a time. Jonna Murray stage managed the original production of Into the Woods from its early readings and workshops through the Old Globe and on to Broadway. She previously worked with James Lapine as production stage manager on March of the Falsettos and assisting him on Sunday in the Park with George, on Broadway and at Playwrights Horizons, where she did double duty, playing the role of the waitress and understudying Frida. She also stage-managed William Finn's America Kicks Up Its Heels, in addition to numerous other off-Broadway shows in both commercial and nonprofit theaters. For the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Playwrights Conference, Jonna served in several roles, from administrative assistant to managing director. First, I have to thank you so much for talking to me because I have I've been dreaming about having you. It really has been so actor heavy, this podcast. And um, I obviously am excited to talk to them all, too. But I, I, I really need some some of the people like behind the table to to give me another side of things. And of course, Lapine was my first uh, chat. So I started off strong in that direction, but it's really, it's really just veered off into actor land. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for this. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thank, thank you for accepting. And, um, I guess I would just love to hear your entire experience. I think you worked, um, with Lapine and Sondheim on Sunday in the park with George before this. Is that right? Yes, I did. I actually met Lapine on March of the Falsettos at Playwrights Horizons. Talk about a fairy tale moment. I had an interview with James and with a man named Bill Camp, who was the sure. manager and is still my husband. Uh, and I worked with James throughout the 80s up until the 90s when Falsettos went to Broadway. So by the time we did the first read through of what was to become Into the Woods, more or less, I had done March of the Falsettos at Playwrights Horizons. I, I went away and did 
kingdoms on Broadway while they were at West Side Arts. I understudied Maria Tucci and stage managed. Well, if that's not two jobs, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> eventually, Equity said that's two jobs. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just give me one. It's fine. Um, but and then I came back and did falsettos in Los Angeles and uh, Midsummer in Central Park with James. Oh, right. And Sunday in the Park with George in all of its incarnations. Uh, I understudied Nancy Opal when we were at Playwrights Horizons because otherwise they had no way to pay me. So I said, okay. And I played the waitress for the week that we did act two. So I had done a variety of things with James. Clearly. So you were sort of on the the um, assistant director slash stage manager track kind of teetering based on like employment opportunities? I Well... I was mostly stage managing. I did some acting um, and I assisted James. I had worked, I started out when I was uh, about 18 as an intern at the National Playwrights Conference. Mm. So I always had an interest in new material Mm. Um, and I had done some singing. I had sung at Jan Wallman's on Cornelia Street. I had directed a production of She Loves Me in Ohio. That's a little that, but um, March of the Falsettos was really the first musical I did in New York. Well, that's a pretty um, exciting and influential one to start off with. Um, wonderful. And uh, so, uh, and then did you do other shows with Lapine in between March of the Falsettos and Sunday in the Park? Well, I did Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, that was before Sunday in the Park. Excuse me. That was before Sunday in the Park. It was between Got it. Sunday in the Park. And so what what was the difference going from those experiences into a Sondheim collaboration? Well, Steve had an enormous amount of experience and a very distinct and demanding work process for himself. Mm. Um, so it was different in that regard. I had I don't re- remember not knowing who Stephen Sondheim was. I knew who he was by the time I was two in the 1950s. You know, <laughs> uh, I had... Uh, of course, gone to college. And so I had played Marta and I had done side by side and, you know, this not, not side by side, but a, a review of his material. Mm. So I was extremely f- familiar with his material. Um, and James was not. Uh, so that was very interesting um, being next to someone who came from such a different perspective on the whole thing. I mean, Steve is brilliant. He was, he was yeah. truly brilliant. He never thought he was finished. I think, I think James included my comment about that in the book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He never thought he was finished. He always had more. Uh, he killed his darlings, as the writers say. Mm. He wrote wonderful material that was either included only in a reading or never included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was very interesting. And he and Lapine had a really excellent relationship. Yeah. communicated really, really well. Um, they had talked about a lot of things with Woods, um, with everything, I'm sure, but certainly with Into the Woods. Um they wanted, they knew they wanted to do a quest. Yeah. And in early conversations, I believe Steve was talking about things like Dungeons and Dragons and James said fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And clearly, they listened to each other and they found yeah. a way to fulfill some of the notions of each of theirs in Truly. So brilliant. So tell, you know, one thing that I've just been endlessly, I mean, I could really go back with you 
to that first meeting at Playwrights Horizons. I mean, I, I could, I, you know, if, if I had 19 <laughs> hours, I, there's nothing I'm not curious about in your experience. And beginning with the fact that you grew up knowing Sondheim, because I'm surprised by how I many of the people him. didn't. No, but I mean, knowing his I work, know. were your parents like big theater aficionados? Well, my father actually was contracted to write the theme song for the movie Bonjour Tristesse. Mm. in the late 50s uh, by Arthur Lawrence. Wow. Then paid him out of his contract and gave the title song to Steve. So Amazing. How did your so dad that feel then? my first story about Arthur Lawrence. No, no, he's not our, he's not our people. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but he, uh, according to, uh, to him, he, he was uh, concerned that Steve was, you know, doing this ill-fated show called West Side Story, Story and he thought he should throw him some more work. <laughs> So yeah, amazing. But the first time I was really, really aware of, of Sondheim's work um, was indeed again because I had I did have a lot of theater people in my family. And yeah, I, I was in elementary school with the Guilford kids, so obviously it's just ja this is Jack it. and Madeline's children. Yes, indeed. yes, um, um, those Guilford kids. Yes, and I grew up in Greenwich Village. You know, we all. We all knew all the shows. How cool. We all went to all the shows and all of that. You really were Marta. No, I guess but, Marta um, comes Karen, from the music yeah. director called Karen Gustafson, who was playing the auditions for company. Mm. My uncle Jonathan Lewis, Lu uh, Jonathan Lucas, he who won the uh, the Obie for Paris and the original Golden Apple, that guy. Oh, um, wow. He was a good friend of Karen's. And um, we went over there and she actually played us some of the material, which I'm sure she wasn't supposed to do. But uh, that was the first time I realized that I needed to hear more. And I mean, it wasn't much more than 10 years later that you were really on the inside of that. Um, so uh, tell me, uh, when was the first time that you knew that they were talking about this fairy tale Dungeons and Dragons quest fusion project? I don't know. I know that the first time I actually met Steve was the first read through of the first the very first read through of Sunday in the Park. Oh yeah. And I conventionally with these and many other readings of things that happened and things that didn't read the stage directions. Yeah. Um, and we hit it off right away. So that was all fine. Um, into the woods. I, you know, I, I try struggle to remember what order things happened in, but yeah. there a lot. I mean, I didn't just work with them. I did uh, America kicks up its heels with. Bill oh Lynn. yeah. Patty Lapone. I've been six or seven shows at Manhattan Theater Club. I worked at the Chloramond. I worked at the Phoenix. I wow. Worked, um, at uh, the Public. I, I just worked all the time. I worked all the time. So, and um, so. The first thing on the Into the Woods I docket. At, I was working for Lincoln Center. I was doing a, um, Andy Wilkes production of Winter's Tale. Oh, wow. When we did the first read through of, of Woods. So. And so this is the, this is the read through of Into the Woods that. I have struggled so hard to get any information about. I mean, what I have I been... know Christine Esterbrook was there. I had understudied her in Lady House Blues. Amazing. Like... I so, did get to talk I, to but, her. And I know, yes, I heard, I, I've heard the ones you've done. Oh, I love you for that. So, um... You're my partner in this struggle. <laughs> I'm a stage manager. I can't help myself. Um, so, but I, and I have, a copy of it here. Oh. I do not have a cast list. Well, let, let's piece together what you can. I can tell you that there were some very interesting things in there that did not remain, like Milky White actually spoke. Wow. 
And I think you've heard a little bit about Rumpelstiltskin. I think Joyce mentioned that Rumpelstiltskin and, and the pigs. Uh, Just and that they existed. The, uh, the, uh, so the, wolf, the wolves were there. I think the wolves were there clear through the old globe production. Yeah, that sounds I, right. I know that there was the... Um, this is not really telling you about the first read, read through, but from the workshop, I know that that um, they had that little business with the, the two wolves speaking. With yes. But that did exist back in this original one. Uh, there's an exchange. Rumpelstiltskin actually talked to a lot of people um, with the wolf about the, the, oh no, the wolves had their scene with the little pigs. And uh, he also later talks with the witch. And with other characters, so he was. There was a lot of Rumpelstiltskin. So the witch was in the first incarnation. Yes. Because nobody has been able to tell me who read the witch in that reading. At one point, I know I had, and I don't know where it is. I had. This is not the the very first non singers reading, but the 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 workshop reading. Um, I did have a list of the people who were in it at some point, and I know that there was no witch listed. Interesting, because I know at the playwrights workshop in 86 that Betty Buckley was the witch. And that was when it was um, Joanna as the baker's wife, Ray Gill as the baker. And that was when Nancy Opal uh, and Jana Schneider were the stepsisters and uh, And Mary Darcy and Howard McGillan. Yeah, right. So Um, we had the the Drood people there. And we also had... uh, Joy and Ray and B.J. Ward was doing right. the line the later Merle Louise did. Uh, they were all with on Merrily with us. Oh, I did Merrily with them before, somewhere. In oh, there. there's that. In, um, in California, yeah. But that, the, but this first non-singers reading, the Christine Estabrook reading. I, I, my understanding is that that was in '85 at Playwrights. It was. It was uh, the script that I have is dated eleven eleven eighty five. That that wow! I can't believe that my guess was right. And then it says it says right at the top, Playwrights Horizons, one day only. And Danielle Ferlin remembers having done that, and um, she thinks that Robert Sean Leonard was Jack because she remembers when he she saw him again in the workshop that they'd already known each other. That's certainly that, possible. I, I remember Bobby Leonard from the workshop. Of course, yeah, yeah. The Jacks, not the not the Giants in the Sky that eventually came. No. One came yeah. Point, but... I think that's the version that John Cameron Mitchell recorded in those demos that were done later. It's more it's more pat- pattery uh, or, you know, difficult. less. It was very difficult song. Yeah. 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 Um, so, OK, so we're, am I going to let go of the we're going to be able to think of any of the other. I mean, is it possible that Betty Buckley was the witch in that reading? It's possible. Or I, you, I really don't. I mean, I honestly do not. I usually had to do a, a, a little montage of all of us saying I don't remember. I, don't I know. Remember. And, you know, I went to the Yale Library and looked <laughs> through all of James's papers there like three times. I took the train three different times thinking, oh, well, there was that folder of stuff from the Into the Woods movie scripts. Maybe there's something accidentally shoved in there. I mean, I looked and looked. I learned more about the Falsettos movie that never happened than I ever dreamed I would know. But I still couldn't find the answers about the playwrights reading, the the non-singing reading of Into the Woods in 85. Um, I'm but... surprised Ira doesn't know, but... 
I, Ira was the one that was able to tell me Christine Estabrook. And yeah. Ira thinks that he has archives somewhere that maybe he'll be able to get to, but he he didn't know offhand. Right. And then um, my only, I'm hope I might try to go and look through the Sondheim papers um, at the, uh, I think Library of Congress they are. Um, because I'm just so curious now. I don't know what's going to happen. This is my quest. I'm going to find the answer and nothing's going to change in my life, Jonna. I have not looked because I never play cassettes anymore, but I have not looked through my pile of cassettes. So mm. I will let you know who who it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And would you recall that when you, it was the actors were merely reading the script, but was Sondheim singing any music in that reading? Yes. yes. And let me go to the here so there were i'm pretty sure it would have been steve doing this assuming that this is the script that it says it is yeah what's the opening number which probably he did yeah uh, i know i have heard him do it yeah uh, and there which included quite a lot i mean it was uh i wish my son were not a fool bugs on her dogs into the woods and down the dell the path is straight i know it will mm. uh so all of that was in there there a lot of the opening number is there. Yeah. Uh, and um, the bean song is there. That justifies the beans? No, uh, the witch's song. Oh, the, the like the rap, yeah. Rap is there. Yeah. And it was wonderful hearing Steve do that. I bet. That was thrilling. And I don't think there's any music at all after that. Whether he did some underscoring or not, I don't know. But I don't think so. Fascinating. Um, And, do, I mean, do you remember your own feeling... Uh about this piece in that moment? I thought it was a terrific idea to combine the fairy tales. And I, of course, was of the belief that Steve Sondheim can do anything. Yeah. I love Lapine's dark humor. Mm. The fact that, and there are some things in there. There are some of the earlier versions, Cinderella wasn't quite as nice. Oh. She was, I mean, she was still, she was still nice, but she went after this, she wanted to have a festival and the steward wasn't cooperating and she would say, you know, things to him and the stepmother would come in and say, well, we need now need a new steward. <laughs> so there was Fascinating. a whole, so that was there. And Little Red Riding Hood, of course, maintained some of her edginess. But what, um, what, this is actually, there, there was a, a saying, now that's, this is from the workshop, not from that original reading, but there was a, um, We'll have to give her someone. Yeah. Oh, right. That song, the witch trying to convince them to. Uh, yes. And so the witch says, we'll have giant. to give her someone. Well, maybe. How about the baby? The baby, the baby. And then the next verse is, we'll have to give her the brat, meaning Little Red Riding Hood. Yes. And ends with Little Red Riding Hood says, saying to the witch, we ought to give her you. Yes. So, uh, there's, uh, there was, that edginess was always there with, with Little Red, but very outspoken. Mm virgins as well and uh, the um you know uh, your when the baker says your grandma your mother your grandmother's gone she says no she's right there huh. and he, he says the baker says no no i mean i mean she's dead oh oh well and little red riding hood goes to pull the the sheet back and he says don't do don't do that so there was a lot of darkness in these yeah tales, which i thought made it fascinating and some of it remained and some of it was effectively musicalized. You could tell by the the tone of the music. Totally, there was darkness there, without having to hit it quite so much on the on the head. So they really, again, you know, it was a brilliant collaboration. 
That's such an interesting thing that you said, Jana. I'm already loving talking to you so much. I can't even, I can't oh, even, so I'm too excited. Say, um, I, I had a great, I had a great chat with Doug Sills uh, two days ago. And he talked about that the very first time he heard the Wolf's music, it just produced such strong feelings in him. And he felt that there was just such like deep, uh, reservoirs of feeling and and darkness and and passion and and just all there was so much there and I and I think in a way it, I understood that in the same way that I understand what you're talking about how they musicalized that that kind of darkness in the fairy tales that feels really true to me. Yes, and I it was um, such a growth thing for for me and for James. I I, I feel safe. So there was. But this back on falsettos, my mother called me one morning when we were in rehearsal and she said, there's a piece about March of the Falsettos in the Times. You're really someone. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, well, thanks, mom. And I, she said, go read it and then call me back. So I go to read it and it, it, nowhere does my name appear. My name didn't even appear in programs sometimes, you know, so they didn't, they didn't really know I was there. I was in the wings, uh, but, but it actually said James was quoted as saying someone asked. I asked someone what a measure was. And that was and you. that was my mother's joke because you're really someone now. That's hilarious. Thought, um, oh, thanks very much. But uh, yeah, so it was a huge growth pattern for, for yeah. me, I think, in seeing how, and I, I had done enormous amount of work. I mean, I had done several seasons at the National Playwrights Conference, starting out as an 18-year-old who wow. told they should hire to, to becoming Lloyd's assistant. Yeah, um, wow. A, a job that was later called managing director. I yeah, I bet. yeah. <laughs> you know, times have changed since the 70s. So um it wasn't just working with writers. It, it it's the the way music feeds in, the way under the brilliance of the underscoring and all of that. Um I don't think I ever had any doubt that it was going to be Yeah. Better. But I had also done Sunday in the Park with them and I'm the sucker who cries the first time she hears the lyric. I'm, I'm, you know, having trouble working because I'm, I can't see through my tears. So, <laughs> God. Um, I <laughs> like, mean, there are Louis and there are Georges, and I'm already crying. You know, well, <laughs> I, you, I mean, as well, you should be. I mean, obviously, you were someone who was really in the sweet spot of kind of, you know, the ideal audience for this uh, work, um, and and clearly, you followed your passion in your career choices because this spoke to you so so you know meaningfully but was there the sense then in the in that time in the process in that first reading not just in terms of your experience but did you feel like everyone knows this is going to be something or was there did it feel like they were fighting against uh some I, kind of impressions well many of us in the room came with a history yeah on sunday in the park with george there was an enormous amount of tension. And um, I actually, some of the crew on Sunday in the Park was the same crew I'd been on the road with on Kingdoms on the way into Broadway. Oh, wow. And I knew them very well. And one of them called me the mole. And he, he, <laughs> he would tell me, he said, if you tell me something that was really good that you saw tonight, then I will tell you what they've been saying back here. And there was a lot of tension in the cast. They thought it wasn't working. And uh, you're talking about at playwrights in Sunday in the Park, not no, I'm, no. I'm talking about on Broadway. Wow! For the last time, I am not on Ozempic. I made one little joke on this podcast, and everybody started calling me out, texting me, calling me cringe, whatever. I really was asked by people if I was on Ozempic, and as I told them. I am not. 
I am just eating factors, no prep, no mess meals, okay? Warmer, sunnier days are coming. Fire Island season is here. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. And kitchen time is kept to a minimum. They are ready in two minutes. No shopping, no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup. Enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or just simply to eat well-balanced. Head to factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 and use code giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code giantsinthesky50 at factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, before it opened, I think there was opened. a lot of tension there. And I was convinced that, you know, this is the show that my grandchildren are going to remember. Yeah. I was just absolutely so sure that it was that brilliant. Um, and I have to say, I still feel that way. I, you so, were right. You were right. Uh, Finna. I, I, so, <laughs> so, but there was a lot of tension. And then Merrily, which was one of the most, I mean, I say this having worked on beloved shows, I adore all the falsettos casts, all of yeah. them. Um, but, uh, the Merrily experience was so magical. You're talking about at La Jolla, the Merrily at La Jolla with James. We all got along so well. The, uh, there was a lot of excellent work done. Some of it worked better than others. I have a very funny Steve story from that actually. Um, but, uh, we really thought we were going to be bringing it back to New York. We, uh, au revoir, not goodbye when we left. Quite sure we'd all be seeing each other again. And so, we went into into the woods with with both sides of having seen both sides of that coin. Yeah, we I want to hear that. that it might work and it might not. Yeah, and I, I don't. I I don't know. I don't. I don't know that it was entirely clear. I think everybody was a hundred percent behind it. Mm. Most of us thought it was going to work. Yeah. Um. But you never you know. know. Thought, you, you never know. I want to hear that Steve story, but I want you just to tell me first if my impression is right that I got which was that um, the expectation of Merrily moving from La Jolla to Broadway, or at least I guess potentially there was an off-Broadway budget drawn up. But that that was one thing I found in Lapine's archives was uh, Schubert budgets for an off-Broadway transfer from La Jolla. But, um, but if that, uh, was there the sense 
that Into the Woods was going to happen later after Merrily in New York. And then when Merrily in New York fell apart and didn't come in, that instead Into the Woods got sort of fast tracked. Is that is that does that jibe with how you remember it? Uh, I don't remember discussing Into the Woods at all while we were doing Merrily. Ah, okay. Um, we, I think we were back from Merrily when we did that first reading, actually. Were we not? Do I have my dates wrong? Uh, you said 1185. So yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, we were already back from, I don't remember thinking about Woods while we were doing Merrily. But, um, okay, so let me rephrase the question. I guess that maybe you've answered it, but is it possible that that first reading wouldn't have happened if that had been, you know, pre-production time for Merrily? Yes. If they'd been busy doing something else, I yeah. suppose so. It would have happened later or who knows? Yeah. Interesting. Um, it's so I've, I've talked about this so much. I don't know if anybody else finds it as interesting as I do, <laughs> but I'm, I, cause I, so much of the lore about the Sondheim Lapine collaboration is born out of the failure of the original Broadway Merrily and like Sondheim turning to, a different collaborator and the nonprofit world and a wholly different approach to the art form in general. And then, so it's so interesting to me to think about actually into the woods also coming from a merrily like misfire, you know? Um, uh, but anyway, now Merrily's coming back. Um, but okay. So moving on, uh, thank you for indulging me in that. Tell me your funny Sondheim story from, oh, you, know, uh, it's just, uh, you know, I was constantly asking them to give me the music and I, and Sunday in the park with George, I was in a very different job and Maddie Pincus would give me the music to check the lyrics before she sent it on to Sondheim. So mm. I was used to having music in my hands and as a stage manager, it is remarkably hard to get your hands on the music. So <laughs> Sure enough, there we are in Merrily, and I have no music, so I'm literally writing counts into my script, you know. Wow. So wow. it would say uh, whatever it is, yesterday is gone, two, three, four, one. Wow. Right? So wow. I count it because Wendell Harrington had 4,000 million gazillion slides going. Yeah. At Merrily, and of course, there was scenery and lighting and this and that and the other thing. So sure enough, I'm sitting there one day, it's half hour, and I hear the band playing something that I had not heard. I mean, all familiar songs, but an arrangement that I had not heard. So click, click, click. And I called down and I said, um, what is that you're playing? And they said, it's new music for the curtain call. I said, you do understand that I have about 50 cues in the curtain call. <laughs> so could I have the music? Well, we don't have any music for you. I said, well, how are we going to put it in if I don't know what the music is and I have all these cues to put in? Is there anyone who knows the music who could help me here? And they sent Steve up. Wow. To so call he, the show. <laughs> he sang it for me. That's where it's still, at, we still have half an hour to go. He literally sang it. And I wrote it down with dummy lyrics and counts. And I, we'd, every couple of verses, I'd stop and I'd say, okay, so I have yesterday is gone, two, three, four, one, slow, and two, slow, and, and then it would go into another song and I would write more dummy lyrics. And I, I wrote the whole thing. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to put this in, but don't be surprised if there's some glitches. And I, <laughs> I um, told the stage managers on the set, I said, I'm going to cue you when to send the actors because I'm not going to have them crashing into scenery because it didn't go at the speed I expected or something. Yeah. So <laughs> terrifying that we, we did put it in and Sondheim came back to me afterwards and he said, could I come up and listen to you call the show sometime? Because that was the weirdest thing. That was just the thing. <laughs> 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 I said, well, thank you for singing it for me because otherwise it could not have gone in. I mean, really. It was just, wow. but what a funny thing, right? And yeah. I, 
I maybe I don't understand why stage managers of musicals don't read music or yeah. expected. To, I mean, aren't expected to and are not given the opportunity to if they can. But there you are. So anyway, well, I'm sure he very much player. appreciated that from you. Um, I mean that. Wow. Uh, and also just to think that it was all done by hand. Like, so. I never think of this happening with people of this caliber, but yeah. Everybody gets called in when the. Yeah. Well, Truly. Tough, tough get going. So, okay. Now, the next thing that happens after this Into the Woods uh, actors only sort of no, no singing reading at uh, Playwrights Horizons in November of 85 is this playwrights workshop in J- May and June of 86. Yes, is that May, right? May to June of 80, 1986. Um, I know I was on contract for three weeks. I don't know if the actress were on for two or three. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember, but uh, and this is the cast we discussed with Betty Buckley and Ray Gill and Joanna Gleason and Mary Darcy and Betty Buckley. We think I, I, I know actually it's Betty because she, oh, um, okay. I mean, I haven't talked to her for this yet, unfortunately, but but that's been documented that she did that reading and um, that, uh, yeah. Um, But so, and this reading, they did sing the music. Yes, they did. It was not all the same music. Right. Um, Some of it, some of it was there and some of it wasn't. And I do not have a script for that one. So I can't really interesting that. I, they must have whisked them all away at once, and somehow I escaped with the first one, but not. Yeah, <laughs> well, the first one is even more rare. Um, so, but the uh, the 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 two or three weeks of rehearsal that the actor you would have had with the actors that would have been just them learning that music. It wasn't really staged in any respect, was it? There were people getting up and get and sitting down from their chairs, but it wasn't staged. Just that, way. and um, was that like a two weeks or three, you know, two weeks of rehearsal and then a day with an invited audience or. I I think it was. Yes. And um, was it, uh, do you remember whether there was any potential at that point that this was going to lead to a New York production or was there already a sense of like uh, the old globe happening or, you, you know, was that a conversation you would have been a party to? If there was such a conversation, I was not party to it. Uh, mm-hmm. I was having a lot more conversations when I was uh, working as James's associate, as as opposed to stage manager. Sure, uh, understandably, yeah. But, uh, I think there was a sense that it was going to be completed, that it was already good, and that it was going to be completed, and it would eventually go to Broadway. But uh, and I, I don't um, know if there were conversations about it at that juncture. And do you, um, and so then that was in June. And then I guess uh, the first performances at the Old Globe were like November of 86? The very end of November. And we played through the holidays into early January. But you rehearsed, at least for the beginning of the process, at West Beth in Manhattan. Yeah. And um, what, what do you remember about that process or the casting process or anything with that? I don't really remember a great deal about it. I know that there was a lot of talk about Ray Gill, and I don't know why it was that he wasn't there. Yes, thank you. I, that It's mysterious to me. Um, he was wonderful. He was a pleasure yeah. to work with. We loved working with him on Marilyn. We all loved working with him in the reading, and obviously he came back and did it later, and I love Chip, but yeah. I know that, that wasn't 
James's first idea of yeah role was not Chip. And no, Chip Ira talks about loves like Chip too, but yeah, that came from Ira, I think. Yeah, I mean, Ira talks about sort of tricking them into casting Chip yeah. because they yeah. didn't have the option of Ray, right. but he didn't. I, he didn't know why Ray wasn't available and, then. Uh, well, Ray had that fairy tale baker look to him. Yeah, yeah, and um, he uh, just uh, he radiated kindness and yeah. He was just, I mean, he was just a lovely man. Not that Chip doesn't radiate kindness, but he's kind of edgy and quirky. Yeah, and yeah. Upper West for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so okay, but so then, um, that uh was Chip and Joanna and Ellen Foley and uh this cast in uh San Diego. Then, um, I know that the then the pre Broadway workshop was the following summer. It was uh like June and July of eighty seven. July of eighty seven, predominantly July. Yes. So. I guess I've heard little tidbits about what happened in between January and July, and they don't all sort of line up together. Different people have mentioned sort of uh, these workshop sessions to audition choreographers. Uh, I think I might have offended Lar Lubavitch when I phrased it that way, um, but that had been described to me. Um, does that ring a bell at all? I, I'm sure that happened, but I was not uh, part of all of that. And then also this different people of different people of in between. So yeah. Oh, right. Actual jobs at the time. Different people have talked about like backers auditions. Does that strike any chords for you? I know that there was something like that. There was an audition. I don't know whether it was specifically for backers, but I would assume that that would be the reasoning. Yeah. Um, But I was not part of that. I don't remember being in on the cast. I, I was in on casting for some of these things. Yeah. I certainly remember Eartha Kitt's audition. I mean, well, no time like the present to hear that story. Well, I think Paul Ford has already told it very well. I do remember the first thing she did, she came out and she was wearing this big coat, maybe fur, I'm thinking. Oh, fabulous. And literally twisted her arm in such a way that she pushed it into the chest of the stage manager who had escorted her on. It was such a move. I mean, and then she did Last Midnight with all that tremolo. I know. (laughs) It was spectacular. It was riveting. So that was a replacement casting because it was last midnight. This was on. This was for Broadway. Yeah. yeah. Um, because then I've heard. Head, sorry. I've heard different stories about the, um, for example, Patty Lupone's audition, but no one has actually been able to tell me. Was that before San Diego? Was that after San Diego? Was that be- after the workshop? Right before Broadway? Right before Bernadette? Do you know when that would have happened? I do not know. And if Paul and Scott don't know, then nobody knows, probably. Yeah. Um, well, or maybe I'm, Patty will. Maybe Patty will. Patty would know. I, yes. um, well, speaking of which, I came across something in my Into the Woods notebook. Yeah. That the entire Woods cast and me as their, their stage manager and Betty Corwin of Lincoln Center yeah. had signed a document about recording it. And I have no memory of it ever being recorded, but I did call that one. I'm pretty sure I called that one from the booth. So it could have been recorded and I just don't remember it because I wasn't in the midst of it all with the cables and whatever. But uh, I thought it was interesting that. that Yeah, I should, I should look into that. I wonder if it's in the library. I would have, I don't know. I stupidly would have assumed they just have the 
the broadcast version there, but maybe there's I was another surprised to see it there, but we all agreed to do it, whether we actually did it or not. I don't right. Know. Yeah. Maybe not. Um, that's interesting. Um, so, uh, I, one thing that I'm confused about with this, uh, summer of 87 workshop is that like one person had described it to me as having, um, a couple weeks of rehearsal and then an A version, a B version, and a C version with three different endings to try out in front of different audiences. Yes. And as far as I can tell with the, with what I have left in there, um, the A version was probably, I have nothing marked A version. So Mm. I'm going to assume that by the A version, we meant the script that we originally got. Mm. Mm -hmm. I do have a, Parts of a B version and parts of a C version, both for the end of Act 1, for Scene 5 of Act 1, and for Act 2. But then internally in some of them, I have new other new pages that came after that. So in, in other words, I'll have a B version, which is dated prior to the thing starting. Yeah. It has July pages stuck into it. Mm. So- yeah. No, the work I mean, never stops. No, and, no, for sure. I, I mean, maybe I don't. I can't remember if RJ was around for the workshop or not, but he might. I don't know if he has an archive or not. Yeah, I I reached he might out be to the him. The one who would have consecutive versions. The other person someone had mentioned I should talk to is David Warren. Would he have been around then? Always talk to David Warren. He's a okay, great. Person. He knows everything. <laughs> I then for sure will. Um, and uh, as you recall of those A, B, and C versions, someone had described it to me as there's one where the baker's wife died, one where she stayed alive, and one where everybody died. Is that right? I think that's a, that would be an ex- extreme representation. <laughs> I, 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 uh, um, I'm, she was still dying from the apple. She died from the apple in, in, uh, in the workshop and at the Old Globe. Yeah. Um, as far as I recall. And you don't uh, remember a version where she didn't die. I don't. Maybe she stayed alive longer. And I certainly don't remember one where everybody died. I, there no. may have been one where more people died. <laughs> Thank you. Died. Yeah. But I will say here's the work a workshop version. Mm. And this is uh it's sort of an it takes two reprise, if you will. Oh, okay. In which little red standing there, obviously, with the baker and Cinderella and Jack says, It takes four. <laughs> that's very uh trina and, in the opening number of falsettos on broadway for juice <laughs> it takes four of us like you know, so so and then at the, the last part of that is the baker singing it takes all of us not oh. to give up the ghost at least most lovely such a sondheim line so sondheim Here, he cuts his darlings he does yeah, I was I was mortified when they cut um, in Sunday in the Park when they cut the one on the left is right for me. So the one on the right is left for you. That's I understand that one of the British productions has put it back, did manage to put it back in with his permission. But, <laughs> so you know, this is the Celeste and the yes, Robert Westenberg was one of and them. the cardboard cutout. Cardboard yeah. cutout. Yeah. That's for you. you know, so it, I didn't strike me. But Steve said, no, no, they're just not clever enough to come up with something like that. I said, well, maybe, maybe she just, it just came out of her mouth by accident. I'm glad you mentioned it. It wouldn't come out of her mouth by accident. That's not who she is. I said, but that kind of stupidity is spreading like wildflowers, see? (laughs) I threw me this look like wildfires, not wildflowers. (laughs) Point exactly. (laughs) Movable, movable. 
No, um, she wouldn't sing that. So, so there you are. And he's always right. I, uh, John, yeah. my day job is that I um, am the programming director at this cabaret room, the Green Room 42. And um, the other night we had a concert by Josie de Guzman, who was uh, Maria in the 1980 West Side Story revival. And she sang I Feel Pretty, and she talked about how Sondheim has often disowned those lyrics along the same lines as what you're talking about him cutting for Celeste. She wouldn't be clever enough. And Josie said that she respectfully disagrees with Mr. Sondheim because she feels that this is Maria very much priding herself on being an American now and a citizen and striving towards this sort of aspirational, elevated uh, diction, you know? Smart enough to speak to herself with kind words. Yes, and I I loved that. And I I wish the same for Celeste, number one. Oh, thank you. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure she'd be pleased. (laughs) So, uh, okay, that, um, I mean, God, you know, I, with goes without saying, I'm dying to get my hands on those pages that you've got in front of you, but we'll leave that for... We'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, and then, of course, I, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've seen me go through my, um, uh, my journey of discovery, learning about, um, I had always known that Betty Buckley had done that workshop. Uh, And then, you know, I still have a lot of questions about what happened there. But the thing that I learned in the podcast was that Burke Moses had been cast. um, And I actually got to talk to him uh, the other day. So that that episode hasn't come out yet. But I mean, it was fascinating to hear his experience as a young actor going going through all that. Um, And then I know there were other less... um, I guess, contentious sort of casting shift just in terms of people's availability. Like, um, was it uh, Suzanne Douglas, who was the understudy, but went on as the witch for the first week just because Betty wasn't available yet? Is that right? I have to say that Scott is quite right. She also went on quite a lot because Betty was late. Ah, yes, that's been mentioned. The result of that was that I had to go just read in or sing it for Rapunzel. Rapunzel. Hi for me, really. Well, you're, you're <laughs> Marta. You're but I Marta. Didn't do it. I, anytime I didn't, it, right. Anytime I didn't, uh, it wasn't necessary. I would just leave it be, but it was second midnight. Of course, the, there were lines in there that had, to, it was confusing not to have someone singing. No one could. Yes. Place. Sure. So, so, but, so, but, and then of course, equity came in and she says, do you never learn? Are you having two jobs again? I said, no, 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 no. I'm just reading in because someone's out and they're rewriting. You know, They're like, this Jana is a real problem. She, she cares too much about the production, not enough about actual, like, you know, work ethics for like the union. I'm just helping out. (laughs) Um, so, uh, well, okay, so before even getting back to all the sort of casting of that moment, just in terms of the material, because you mentioned Second Midnight, but based on how what you said, I think you're talking about the Second Midnight as we know it in the show today. That's sort of just like the first Midnight with the little... Um... No, I was talking about... I'll sing, I'll sing a little for you. Oh, please. I don't understand it. Oh, yes. Doesn't every child reflect its mother? I don't understand it. Maybe if I'd ever seen another. And then the stepsisters, what did I do wrong? Mothers ought to trust you. And it goes on like that. And then it goes into the part that Philip talked about. The more you uh, the more you protect them, the more they reject you. The more you reflect them, the more they respect you. And you'll hear that the, the reflect was actually already in the Rapunzel part I just sang for you. Mm. And then at the end of it, 
it, well, it ends, it continues with that. At the top of, that's the top, uh, top of scene three, act one, scene three, top of scene four, the witch sings, what did I clearly say? Children must listen. Wow. And then it goes into a very short version of Stay With Me. Okay, so with, you've just with like answered. three lines of dialogue in between. So yes, she sang Stay With Me, but as far as I can tell, it was a very short version. And it was almost a segue with uh, intermittent dialogue from the Children Will Listen section. Got you. Um, that's fascinating to know. I didn't know for sure whether Stay With Me was in that workshop yet. And I also, because I knew it was not in San Diego. And I also didn't know if that's full. I'm obsessed with that big second midnight group number. But I didn't know if that had already been in the workshop or if that wasn't until Broadway rehearsals. But you've just answered that. It was, and it was rehearsed a lot. And yeah. this, uh, it's a Lapine thing. We had a, a, one of the promenades in Sunday in the Park. The company called it Ooh, a Lily. <laughs> and we rehearsed it every day, I'm going to say. Every... It felt like every day. Maybe, oh, my God. Maybe twice if we had lunch or not. <laughs> we just rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And I don't know what it was. But I always figured it must be triggering something for him as the writer to to yeah. to, to be, or uh, I mean, maybe it was for him as the director. But I had the sense that there was something in there that was not leading in or not. Yeah. Out. There was something going on for him with this thing. Totally. It's not Lar or Randall no. or any of the cast. It was it was Lapine's thing, and I it, whatever he needed, as far as I was concerned. He should do. Absolutely. That is writing and directing. If he wants to see it, let's do it again. Fine. Totally. But I don't get it always, you know. No, but I but I I love knowing that about him. It's so it's so interesting to think about James Lapine's process. I mean, just because he's such a fascinating and influential artist. He is. And such a nice man. Such an I I I love I haven't seen him, him since so Saturday. much. <laughs> he got an award at uh malay arts on saturday yes that's at actually one gallery. of the places he talked to me about that they had done a presentation of the show at um because i guess he's been involved with them for decades since the 70s and this yeah is the 50th, and uh, he actually had a house in columbia county for a while which mm. is how bill and i got here and we oh that's where you are and now we live in Kinderhook full time. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, well, you can take the girl out of Greenwich Village, but you can't take Greenwich Village out of the girl quite well, our clearly. Our son still has our apartment, so I have. Oh, good. Well, even more important. <laughs> and then, uh, so when you talked about the different endings, were there actually three different performances, or was it like Mystery of Edwin? You know, did they do all three endings at the end of one presentation? Do you remember? I don't think so. I don't remember, but I know that I have a note in the front of one of the acts that says that ending C is what's in place in the, in my script, but I it doesn't. I don't have any record of. Uh, and you know, what does take a lot of notes. <laughs> as yeah. Manage, but we give them all to the producers. Sure. I have to say that I it was not until quite recently that I realized that they didn't keep them. Yeah. Terrible. Um, or if they do keep them, they can't find them. Um. So. Uh, I do I mean, have actually uh, the Broadway script for that. I was the first person to call into the woods on Broadway, mm. um, even though I was the first assistant. Frank was had a lot a lot of seniority, mm. um, but I was the first one to call the show, and it we went through a lot of changes, and it was very complicated. So I actually have a rough draft here because it was so. Yeah. Weird. By the time we opened it, I made a copy, a clean copy for them. So I do actually have one here. And well, that's, that's good. That's interesting to see. Yeah, I bet. And um, 
so then Paul had told me and Danielle seemed to remember that after the workshop, there was a reading at a townhouse with the Broadway cast plus Bernadette in place as the witch. Does that ring a bell to you? No. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't even mean that I wasn't there. As I had worked with all these people so many times before, it wasn't quite as like, oh, Bernadette Peter. Yeah. I'd worked with her on Sunday in the Park, and she's the sweetest person on the planet, you know? Yeah. Generous woman I met ever, I think. So um, it would have been another day at work, you know? Yeah. Ways. I, I, I don't remember. Sure. I, may, I may have been doing something else. And is my impression right? I don't, that... I don't think she, she. I don't think James had her in mind. No. During Old Globe or the workshop, or even not even the workshop. I don't think so. So, because then there was very little time. I mean, if the final presentation of that workshop was in July, and do you know when you started rehearsals? I would think in August. I don't know. I mean, I could look it up because obviously I was on equity contract then, so I would have some idea. Um, Unlike Sunday in the Park with George, where I was only on the equity contract while I was understudying and then yeah. whisked away to left to my own healthcare devices. Uh, but yeah, um, it was it was quick though. Well, it, it was quick. So whatever they were not but thinking, I, and I think I wasn't there. I think I was actually up here because it was eighty seven when I bought my house. It mm. was after we got back from the Old Globe that I bought my first house in Columbia County. Oh wow! And before. The workshop. I hmm. had closed on the house, and I knew I was going into a situation where I was going to be busy all the time. So I may have just not gone in for it. I mean, they didn't need me there, so I may just not have gone for that reading. For that reading, yeah. But but in any case, if the workshop ended even early July and rehearsals started even early September, that was the short period of time that they went from not thinking of Bernadette to thinking of Bernadette. Yes, well, they needed someone. They needed someone. We have to give her someone. She's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And um, then in terms of um, the issue of her only, and I think this probably had to be some part of why it had been left un, unexplored, because I had, my understanding was that she had some kind of film contract or something, which is why her run in the show was so short. And that, you know, because uh, she left in like March or something. Yes, no. Maybe even before then. Maybe, maybe even before. She had, maybe she had announced her departure before then because sometime I had a very difficult spring. I had a very difficult pregnancy. Oh, I'm sorry. I was in and out throughout that spring. And eventually uh, in August of 88, I actually left the show. So I was not there for the end of the run. But I was there to put Felicia Rashad in. I was there putting Dick Cavett in. I think Carolyn Marlowe had been on as Jack's mother while I was there, but there hadn't even been that many understudies going on, although they were great. Yeah. What extraordinary performers we had. I, I, it was thrilling because we never had quite enough people to have all the parts filled. Hmm. So Marianne Kane and I were you know, standing in for people so that they didn't have to play two at once. Although Blumenkrantz, you know, was happy to play all of his at once sometimes. <laughs> it was really, really fun working with them. Um, and But we would rehearse a lot because they were all covering lots of different parts. So yeah. I was there through all of that. Yeah. Uh, and and so, I, so she can't have, I mean, I can't believe I left in March. I think it was a little later than that that I actually left. But it could have been March. I mean, I don't know exactly the dates. So, um... 
but I'm not sure where I was going with that. But I guess that was an early thing to be dealing with replacement castings in that run. Very early for a, a role of that magnitude. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and what what how do you remember navigating that um, as stage manager? Take uh, with Felicia Rashad coming in, a big star in the lead role uh, so early in the in the run and pre- before the Tonys and everything. Well, she's also a really lovely person. So, yeah. Um, I I mean, Frank was there to be handling a lot of this stuff while I was dealing with calling the calling of the show and mm. technical difficulties and um, other stuff that I had to really had to do. Because, I, I mean, he, he did learn to call the show. He started calling the show at least once a week right after we opened. And then Marianne did and eventually Dawson did. There were four stage managers on the show. And all of us could call, but I called the most. And um, and initially during previews, all of them. So I was uh, not necessarily dealing with all of that other stuff that was going on. Frank, yeah. who had much more experience and was wonderful, dealt with a lot of uh, the more political stuff, if you will. But I mean, both of those women are so completely lovely. Mm. Yeah. I was not aware of any problems. No. And then, um, oh, sorry, back to the material a little bit. Um, the um, You talked about Stay With Me uh, being in the workshop and a shortened version. So I assume that means it was later than that um, when uh, Lament or, you know, the Stay With Me. Uh, yes, when it was expanded to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, would that have been for the first Broadway rehearsal or sometime later than that in previews even? Or do you know? I don't remember. And then what about like um, Children Will Listen? Was that a song at the end of the show uh, to start a Broadway rehearsal? Or do you remember when that came I'm in? I'm going to say not at the, it was not at the end of the, it was not. The conclusion of the show was not entirely in place when we started Broadway rehearsals, I'm quite sure. It had already been used outside of the second midnight in the workshop. Yes. Which was singing it right before Stay With Me. Yeah. I don't remember it being at the end until later. Uh-huh. Would that but have happened maybe? There was maybe... a lot of stuff with the, the narrator being the baker's baby or not. Right. Yeah, people have uh, talked about that. Which is why that it was double cast. And Yeah. Um, didn't turn out that way and it was separated out i guess when dick cabot came in was when yeah was separated back out into two right potentially being two roles in certain circumstances um but it was purposeful originally that they were double cast yeah grandfather and grandson yeah um i don't really know i i it was what is I a pro- keep is- up myself without uh I mean, obviously they weren't far apart in any case, but is was is it possible that children will listen becoming this song at the end of the show was somewhat in tandem with Second Midnight being cut? It's possible. And uh, certainly I would imagine that when the Second Midnight came out and came back reconfigured as the aphorisms, um, that it would have been, it would have, there would have been more built up at the end for children will listen whether they knew that it was coming before we did or not i could not yeah. say um but we also had uh, a, a curious set i will tell you um because we had that telescoping tower that yeah and we had that huge sweep the platform that we call yes. the sweep, that sort of angled platform and 
I, I can't remember the sequence of events either, but I, you know, the show must go on. I had never stopped a show. I had stopped, I stopped a show once, once before when someone had a heart attack in the audience for a different show. Wow. Uh, so I had done it once where, and then I had stopped during Marilyn um, La Jolla. I stopped it because the fire alarm went off. Oh. And actually evacuated and came back. So I had, in fact, stopped shows before because I think safety first, you know. Yeah, I, safety first. I don't want to stop it either, but you got to do what you got to do. So in this case, it was the first time that I stopped a show because I simply ran out of actors. They were all trapped. Oh, gosh. The tower was up. And certainly Pamela, as Rapunzel was in there, and I think Bernadette may have been there too. I'm not sure, but it went part way down, but it didn't go all the way down, which meant that we couldn't move the sweep over. Which oh. meant that we couldn't bring Granny's cottage down. Oh, God. So I'm like flashing my little light and I've got Gemignani on the phone while I've got the crew on 57 <laughs> channels. And it was like it was like some parts of this were like singing a patter song while you're playing the piano. I I I had so many cue lights and so many things to say that I didn't have time to talk about problems. Sorry, I'm busy. Like I no, I had to stop. So I'm saying, Paul, just keep vamping. And poor Danny Furland was out there all by herself. The wolf who could conceivably have played the scene downstage was dressed as a prince from the waist down because he had the covers over him. Oh, so he couldn't come down. Yeah. I, I and I thought, so, okay, <laughs> there's nobody to play the next scene. No. So I think we're not going to have improv night here. I think I'll just stop. And it, it, it was early days and having uh, the scene changes stopped by the computer. If there was a collision. Mm. And a hairpin was enough to have the computer think it was a collision. So it was yeah. as soon as we found the the little thing that was in the track, it was no problem. Yeah. I mean, it like it was a huge problem, but you did have to eliminate it and reprogram it to go again. Yeah. But uh, there was a curtain, right? Like for you to. There was a curtain. Yes. And yeah, so we bring in the curtain. And this was before. I think this first one was before Dick was there, so we didn't have the Dick Cavett show. Yeah, right. And the next time I stopped, uh, Chip and Ben at the Baker and Jack, I, I should <laughs> there was no room for me to stand downstairs because even though it's a really big theater, yeah, Martin Beck, now the Hirschfeld, it has tiny wings. Mm. So we literally, and we had things like four cows. We did not have room for four cows in the wings. No. Never mind a carriage. No, so we had God. some very tight cues where like the carriage would go up across with four people standing there and it had to be called by the stage manager's stage left because you really couldn't see well enough that it was off and it, you only had about a foot and a half before it would crash into the wall if you didn't, yeah. didn't get it out of there. plus the four people you had to get out of the way and we're flying cows up and down and everything i mean so i was upstairs at, on stage right and uh, the witch and the wife had their dressing rooms on that side and everybody else was on the other side so it was we were in our own little haven up there in a way but the guys would come up to the second floor where i was sitting and they had they would get into onto their branches and they would fly up and over and down onto the onto the for no one is alone yes for and then the uh, giants killing yeah kill the giants and it worked fine um until one day it didn't and i called the queue and then (laughs) i said brad can you get them out of there? No. <laughs> I thought, oh. So 
get everybody going and uh, they had to go find the electrician who does the house curtain who was of course playing cards somewhere else and that I, I tell them to put curtain warmers on the thing and I tell Paul to play and I tell sound to turn on the god mic and I said well we're having a what's technical a, difficulty what's a and curtain we'll, warmer uh, the lights on the curtain. oh oh, oh. and, and um, so they bring out the cherry picker and it's not high enough. So, but Artie was very, very tall. One of the stagehands actually came out and lifted them out. So that then, um, back then, was there a thing where when you had to undo the telescoping tower and the sweep, did they all have to go like backwards in order? Like, was there some weird process you had to follow to kind of untangle or could you just then reset? We, well, the things did not collide because they were, they were computerized already. Yeah. So um, they didn't collide. They would just stop. Yeah. It's the same thing that they had with Starlight Express, which was hysterical, you know, right. they would actually practice before a uh, half hour um, that if this light didn't go on to green, they had to back up and go the other way. Cause they had one dangerous day when the gate didn't go up because it wasn't in place properly. And they all boom, 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 crashed into each other. So, we weren't the only show having some of these problems getting the glitches out of this automatic stopping thing. But yes, once it was set to go, it wasn't that they had actually collided into each other. It was that something was in the track or something else went wrong or who knows what. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is off topic sort of, but did you do the tour at all? I did not go back after I left. In after 88. 88. Yeah. I did not go back. The kid came out fine. He's great. He's still great. Mazel tov. Um, thank you. We, uh, my husband got a job working in uh, uh, Europe for half the year. So we were going back and forth, back and forth to Europe. Uh, so the next show I did after that was actually in 92, uh, Falsettos. I just, right. and I did, I didn't stage manage it. I just put the first act on its feet mm. because nobody could remember anything. <laughs> what you're experiencing wow. with us now. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was that. I mean, that could be a whole podcast unto itself for sure. But um, uh, I, the reason I asked about the tour was because I, when I talked to Doug Sills the other day, he said that he was Rapunzel's prince and he was covering uh, Cinderella's prince, but that when he would go on uh, Cinderella's prince, when um, uh, Chuck Wagner would be out, Doug would not play the wolf. Somebody else would cover the wolf. Um. Sir, I did not work on it, and I certainly do not know, but altering that wolf's costume is no joke. Gotcha. If they were a different size. Yeah. Might be the answer right there, because I know yeah. now and then we had to alter it, and it was... There it is. That first scene of Into the Woods, the wardrobe department is busy doing the show cues. Yeah. There's not a lot of staff left to be doing alterations once the show. No, no, they're, they're, they're in I real mean, time. Everyone is changing their clothes all the time. I mean, the mysterious man and the narrator—they're yeah. changing their clothes all the time. So, um, so it's a busy half hour. Yeah. If that's yeah. when you find out, or even if you know, so th I, that would be a hypothesis. That is not a fact. I would I'll not. take it. No, that sounds totally reasonable. Um. And, uh, oh, God, I mean, I guess um, anything else that you uh, want to share about any part of this process? I mean, it's just so endlessly fascinating to me. Marianne Kane, the stage yeah. manager. She was uh, one of the assistant stage managers. Um, she was the best at the blocking. She was often the one um, helping the understudies find mm. their path. 
loves backstage and she's fabulous and you should talk to her. I think I tried, I but I'll... She's the one. I believe she's living in California now. Uh, but um, I think she's the one. We had these four cows and I think she's the one who named them. Uh, and of course there was Milky White. Yes. Who was the regular old cow who didn't do any tricks. No. And then there was Holy Cow. <laughs> Holy cow, cow is the one that had the hole so you could, and it had the little puppet so that uh, to make the tongue. So that oh, they, yes. That they could feed the objects that would come through. Yes. And we had, I don't know if they, it was always called How Now, but we had How Now. How Now. Cow who had the yes. Puppet. Yes. <laughs> she and is. I don't remember what the dying cow was called, but the dying cow had a little, it was like a knife in its foot, and it was run by remote control. And they would press it, and the the thing would push the cow over. Oh, wow. That was its trick. But I actually have a note in the calling script that says, with this and with the um, the golden goose, or yeah. whatever it was, the, the, lay, the laying hen, yeah. that, that the static on the headset is from the remote control. So that whoever was calling the show wouldn't be worried that they were about to lose communication because ah. they were right underneath me and they would start doing this. <laughs> it was horrible. I used to get the New York Times press room occasionally on the headsets too. So look oh, how much right. progress they've made since then. Yeah, God. Oh, this yeah. is like I remember hearing um I think it was during Sunset Boulevard in London in 1993 that the sudden proliferation of cell phones uh was messing up everything backstage yes i wasn't even necessarily in the audience just in town you know yeah, yeah we'd hear us occasionally we'd get we'd hear the police car mm. walkie talkies going by and stuff it was <laughs> it was not helpful no oh well no. get off my channel please new york times <laughs> <laughs> i don't i have no idea if they could hear us or would you know yeah, well, maybe you I could get a so. scoop on I the no idea if they were listening for critics. Anything. Yeah. Oh, um, Old Globe. I, this is like sort of an aside. Yeah. I'm not sure it's of any interest. Interesting questions. I know you've already talked about, but there was uh, the song "Just the Same as Last Night" was in through the Old Globe, and it in, it contains the line, "He's a very nice prince." I don't know that song at all. I don't it know anything not about that. The same. It is not quite the same song. I don't even know. No, Old Globe, it was already there. The the final version of nice, there. A Very Nice Prince. Just the same as last night. Interesting. So would that have been at Playwrights Horizons then? Must must have been uh, must have been one of the readings, yeah. Before it was completed. Sorry. Was it a, a duet for Baker's Wife and Cinderella? It, uh, it was, yes. Speaking I mean, of that, Jonna. Oh, and Back to the Palace was still in, in the playwright and the workshop yeah longer workshop as well yes the um the version of i have the b version here oh oh and then i also have the c version oh p has some pages that are dated july so they must have gotten mixed together to some degree oh and i do have a scene five that says a version that's dated june of 87 so Oh, great. It's very confusing. Yeah, for sure. You can't really tell what was changed. Uh, can, can, can you imagine if next week you had to stage manage that workshop all over again and just make sense of these pages now? Sorry, I'm not available. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm retired. 
I don't, so, you know, on the um, Broadway cast recording, there are longer versions of some songs. A Very Nice Prince, Any Moment, um, The Lament, that have more material uh, than what is in the script as published. Um, was that stuff that was cut in previews and just included for the cast album? Probably, but I was not there for the recording of the cast album. So. Oh, interesting. But I will say that uh, a show that I did with Sondheim and not with Lapine, uh, because, you know, what a do-gooder he was, uh, was uh, to benefit the Manhattan Theater Club Poetry Series. And it was called Sung and Unsung Sondheim. Wow. And it was Charlie Kimbrough and Patricia Elliott. Wow. Introduced by John Guare, doing readings of the lyrics as poetry. To Fascinating. I and mean, if you were trying to do a benefit for poetry, what how would you draw the audience? You know, I, I don't you, know, but it seemed like a really good idea, and the house certainly was full. And what a wonderful group of people to work with. Um, and uh, I don't know that I have much to tell about that, but there were some cut. There was some cut material in there, and there were a few lines that were fun lines that were not exactly the way they had been in, for instance, company no. thrown in to, to humor the people who <laughs> know in the house, you know, but it's, it was great. It says a lot about poetry that in that world, Sondheim is like commercial, like box office magic, you know? Yes. If you want, if you want, if you want to sell some tickets, you got to get Sondheim's name in there somewhere. <laughs> well, in the New York fundraising world at that time, it was certainly the case. Well, if, for certainly if the audience is you and me, that would still be the case. Um, uh, wow. I mean, uh, I, I really, I can't tell you how incredible this has been for me. I'm so grateful to you for this. Um, you're uh, just a font of uh, singular, singular font of information. Quite a lot of things I don't remember. I'm sorry to say. Well, that's and some that I never everybody. Knew, yeah. Well, yeah. that's that certainly. And by all means, feel free to edit as much as you want. Thank you, thank you. And I have I, no I, idea what is of interest and what rings true. Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky: How Sondheim and Lapine Went into the Woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Look out for episode 29 with John Bell, Sondheim's intern at the Old Globe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.